like to welcome you to Lakeside Christian Church this morning and invite you to open a Bible to Psalm 42. If you're using one of the Bibles that's been provided for you, you'll find Psalm 42 on page 469. As we're turning there, we as human beings have an amazing capacity to make mistakes, do we not? Sometimes our mistakes are a matter of timing or effort or knowledge, but sometimes we make mistakes that we refer to as categorical mistakes. In other words, we're off from the beginning. It's not a matter of effort. It's not a matter of timing. We're trying to put things together that were never meant to be put together. And for me, I had this experience on Thursday coming into the church. Uh, The van has an automatic door that if you just get it started when you're trying to close it, it does the rest. And I had a big box, and so I got the big box in my hand, started the door, and started walking away. But therefore, I can't lock the doors until the door shuts, and then I can push the lock button. So I've now made the transition, now walking towards the church building, and somewhere in my mind, I forgot about the door behind me and thought about the door in front of me and started using the keys to the car to unlock the church door. And I'm pushing the button a couple of times and I'm still not thinking and I walk up and I try to open it and find it locked and I'm frustrated. And then I look down and realized, wow, that was ridiculous. <laughs> I was trying to open the church door with van keys. That's a categorical mistake. It's not a matter of how hard I was pushing the button. It just, it's never meant to go together. It has its own set of keys. And to continue to simply try harder to open it with those keys would do nothing. I submit to you, we often make categorical mistakes when it comes to our understanding of God, the gospel, and especially this time of the year, Christmas. We try to figure out how much of what we see in the form of advertising and marketing fits with the story of Jesus and his coming to this earth. And we realize the more and more we look into scriptures for our information that some people are just making a category mistake, but Jesus and his coming does not often go along with the things that we associate it with and that we see surrounded um, by us in this day and age. And so together as a pastoral team, when we considered a a message and a series focusing on what it means that Jesus came, that's where we started. We asked the question of ourselves, what does the incarnation of Jesus into this world address? And one of the songs that is often played as maybe background music this time of year, which we sang at the beginning of our service today, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, refers to Jesus and it says that he's the dear desire of every nation and the joy of every longing heart. And in reflecting on that, we said, yes, that's true. Jesus is the joy of every longing heart. When we come to the story of Christmas, we, it is important that we know not only the details about what transpired, what city he was born in, who was around him at the time, what the gifts were that the Magi brought with them. Those are all important, but if all we learn about the Christmas story is the details of the events and we never learn its meaning, its fundamental purpose then we simply have a bit of more information which for us will do nothing to address the longings of our heart. But the hymn writer 
was right. Jesus is the joy of every longing heart. And so we ask the question, what are the longings of our human hearts that are universal about us, whatever we believe about reality? And so we came up with four, this longing for truth, a longing for justice, a longing for redemption, and a longing for beauty. These are longings of our hearts as human beings, not as Christians or non-Christians. And so as we put this together, we thought the Psalms were the best place to go in Scripture that express the longing of a human heart. They expose in ways that no other part of Scripture does the struggles that all of us have when we come to the situations we face in life. And so each week in this series, we'll begin with a psalm which expresses a longing of the human heart and then go to a New Testament passage which describes for us the meaning of the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so Psalm 42 is where we turn our attention here at the beginning. And if you will, follow along with me. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and of Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The longing of the psalmist is expressed right from the beginning. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. My soul is thirsty for God, for the living God. There is this longing on the part of the writer to experience God. 
and there is a question on the part of those who surround the writer that we see in verse 3 and then later in verse 10 asking the question, where is your God? When we get to verse 4, we realize that this psalm is written in exile. The psalmist is remembering a time, he says, I pour out my soul how I would go. He's remembering a time when I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession of the house of God with glad shouts in songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The psalmist can remember a time when he had the freedom to worship God with a multitude of people. And in those experiences, how close God felt to him But he's no longer in a setting where he can keep festival with the multitude. This psalm is written in the wilderness, in exile. And in a day and age when most things would have been interpreted and thought of in spiritual terms, so such that if there was a military conflict between Israel and its neighbors and one would have won, they wouldn't have said, oh, your generals were better, they had a better strategy, your technology was better, your your, your weaponry was just more superior than ours. They would have interpreted victory and defeat in spiritual terms. So that if Israel would have won, they would have said, see, our God is God. He has proven himself. And if The enemy had won. They would have said, see, our God is God. And so here is the psalmist on the losing end of his current experiences asking the question, God, where are you? But he's longing and thirsting for God. And those around him are asking the very same question. You tell us about your God. You say you believe in him, you've committed your life to him. Where is your God? These questions are questions that each and every one of us face, longing to know what is true, what is real. God, are you there? Is there a God? And if you're there, what are you like? What are you thinking? What are you doing? How do I make sense out of all that I am experiencing of you and your ways? And we can tell this isn't just a a momentary struggle for this writer. He says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. In verse 7, deep calls to deep. Your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This is a huge conflict for this writer This is a prolonged conflict for this writer. And he acknowledges his soul is cast down within him. He's not presently excited or motivated, thinking many positive thoughts. He's depressed. He's in a dark place, wondering where God is. And yet in all of the darkness, in all of the negativity that's around him, He cannot escape the longing, the thirst, the hunger for something more to be true and real than simply what he's experiencing. And that again is a hunger and a thirst that cannot escape each and every one of us. 
that though we go from periods of confidence to periods of doubt, there is within us a longing to know God, to wonder if he is there, and to wonder what he is doing. And these questions, though we're looking at a text here that is thousands of years old, remain questions that we ask today, do they not? Are people still not asking the question, where are you, God? What are you doing? What are you like? And these questions are not coming primarily out of an experience on a Friday afternoon getting off of work early and just sitting around a cup of coffee with friends in the pure enjoyment and pleasure of life. These questions come out of painful and awful, tragic experiences of life that people then turn and say, oh God, where are you? And for the the person on the outside who's not claiming to be a believer, the one who in verses 3 and 10 is simply asking the question, where is your God? There's still a crisis of faith. There's still a lack of belief. But it's, it's even different than what the psalmist is experiencing. Because for the person on the outside, he's saying, everything that I'm observing that's taking place is telling me your God is not the real God. But what the psalmist has experienced even goes to another level. Because the psalmist who believes in God is feeling rejected by God. Forgotten by God. And that's what he writes. He says, why have you forgotten me? And we know in the ordinary experiences of our humanity, the difference between someone simply not knowing us and us not knowing them and somebody who we believe knows us and is rejecting us, is ignoring us. And that's what this psalmist is, is waiting in his mind. How do I interpret God and who he is in light of all that I am now experiencing? But he comes back again and again to remind himself of things and to say, but in spite of all those questions, hope in God, in verse 5, believing that I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. In verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. And he concludes again by telling himself to hope in God, believing that he will praise him, believing that God will save and be there with him. And as he reminds himself of these things, what what he's doing is he's drawing, looking backwards on events that have taken place where he has seen God's faithfulness. And he's choosing to say that even if right now I'm in a dark place, and even if right now I cannot see what you're doing or how this will all work out, I have experienced you before. I have tasted you before. There have been moments of sweetness. And just as much as I cannot deny the awfulness of what's in front of me, I also cannot deny the goodness that I have experienced. 
And so I choose to believe, even though I'm not in the moment experiencing those things, I choose to believe that there is reason for hope, that I will again join the multitude in keeping festival, that I will again praise you. And there is this amazing expression in the midst of all of this questioning and uncertainty that this psalmist is saying, I will still choose to follow God. And that's sometimes where when we approach a psalm like this, we realize that we maybe have been making some category mistakes when we understand God and what it means to follow him. We often uh, differentiate people by saying, are you a believer? Are you an unbeliever? And so that if you identify yourself as a believer, well, then what you're not supposed to have is doubt and uncertainty, moments of questioning. Instead of if we said, are you a follower or not a follower? Because when you're a follower of Christ, you can say in the midst of your following There are periods of time where I go from confidence in him to questioning him, but I don't stop following him. Believe me, there are experiences that get me to doubt and they get me to question. And maybe my motion goes from walking to being stopped to falling on my knees, but I have not been given reason to go back. I've been given reason to question. I've been given reason to wonder. I've been given reason to doubt. But I have not been given reason to turn around. I'm a follower. And in that following, there are moments of sweetness. There are moments when he is near. There are moments that I don't want to get out of where everything else can seem to fade away and there's a beauty in being one of his children. And yet there are times in the journey when you're going through a valley or a dark place where as a follower, experiences come, things happen where these questions become very real questions for you and for I. And for many who look on the outside and they see those struggles and they see us and we say we're Christians. And their perspective is, well, if you're Christians, that means you never have doubt. You'll never go through a dark place. You'll never be depressed for a prolonged period of time. And they see those struggles, they say, well, see, then I don't believe you're God. And part of the mistake might be on our end to say, maybe we've miscommunicated something, but identifying yourself as Christian, saying that you're a believer, is not saying that you have it all together. It is saying that you have discovered something in this person named Jesus that you have committed yourself to following after him and following him in the good and the bad, in the periods of certainty and the periods of doubt. But it is possible to be a follower even though the questions of uncertainty and doubt remain. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was someone here today who struggled with that very thing, was making that category mistake. Here's the questions I have about God and therefore I don't follow him. Because you you can't, right? You, You can only follow him once all your questions are answered, once all your concerns have been addressed. And the psalmist is saying, no, that's not true. 
That's not what a life of faith is about. And there are some who are here who are saying, making the, uh, another mistake, saying, if I follow him, then all of these things will be addressed. If I just give my life to him, which I feel like I've already done, then every question I have will be answered. Every, every doubt will be addressed. And so if I'm going through doubt now, maybe I didn't really believe, or maybe he isn't really there. And again, the psalmist says, no, that's not true. God is who God is, however we are able in any given moment to experience, see him, or feel him. The truth of who God is is not subject to whether we believe him or not, or whether we experience him or not. If God exists, then he exists completely independently of us and our thoughts and feelings. But we can never let go of that experiential question that we all have. Is what we believe to be true ever experienced as real? See, we have that sort of breakdown all the time. We believe as true that somewhere right now it's 75 degrees and warm and there's a breeze over an ocean. You believe that to be true, but we are not experiencing that to be real for us. And when there's a prolonged period where when what we believe to be true is not experienced as real, then the, the doubt begins to win. We begin to walk away and say, maybe I've been following the wrong person. Maybe I was wrong from the beginning. Instead of saying, no, it's true. And it's true whether or not we believe it. But yes, we need to examine when there are those long periods and say, what is our faith resting in? The questions are a legitimate question that the outside world would raise to us about why we believe in God. Why do we believe that we've not been forgotten, that we've not been forsaken, that we have not been judged? And one of the places that we turn as Christians is to the Gospels. And so I invite you to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, to see how the writer of this gospel, how John describes the significance of the coming of Jesus. And one of the things that you'll notice absent in this brief description is, again, any of the details as it relates to where he was born or or who was around. What, What John is going to right away is the meaning behind his coming and the way in which our God addresses the longings that we have to experience him, to know him, and to know more about him. And so on page 886, beginning at verse 14 of chapter 1, we, we hear this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me and from his fullness we have all received 
grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. But he, Jesus, has made him known. The coming of our Lord Jesus was the addressing of the very questions that the psalmist raised in Psalm 42. Where are you? What we believe is that he entered our story. The word, which at the beginning of the chapter describes as as being the creative person of the whole universe, the word God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That he entered into our story, experienced what we experience as human beings, and therefore, we've not simply been told of his glory, but we have seen his glory. And it's glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That when there is so much noise about God and what he's like and, and what he does and what his ideas and plans and goals are for each and every one of us, for us as Christians now, all of those questions focus on the person of Jesus because the claim is that Jesus was not simply another wise person born, another prophet, another leader, but this conviction that Jesus was God entering our story and therefore the one to whom we bring all of our questions and longings about the character, nature, purpose, and mission of God. And so when we struggle and ask, has he forgotten us? Has he forsaken us? We look to a passage like this and it says, no. He is not removed off into the distance, but he was willing to enter into the messiness of all that we experience. He was willing to suffer and to be surrounded by all the accusers and doubters that we experience And he came and entered into that story. And it says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. And so we claim the ability to know God, not because our experiences are always great and we have really good ears to hear or we're really, really wise. We claim to be able to know the truth and to know God because we believe that the truth has come and that he can make himself known. We do not believe that we are simply wise enough and smart enough and if you put us all together, we can come to the great conclusions of who God is, but we believe that God is able to make himself known that the smartest and the simplest among us can know and experience as real what we believe to be true. This was what John said of him at the beginning of the gospel and this is what Jesus said of himself at the end of the gospel and at the end of his earthly life. If you'll turn to John 18, this is what Jesus said about himself and the significance of his coming. On page 905, beginning in verse 36, Jesus is talking with Pilate who has the power 
to bring charges against him and to carry out the punishment. And Jesus answers him and says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you're a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus has come to bear witness to the truth. He has entered our story to make God known to us. And in a way that is verifiable, in a way that we could know it, if you turn just a little bit further, this will be the last text we go to, but the letter of 1 John, this is found right before the book of Revelations at the end of your Bible, on page 1021. Here again is the claim of the disciples who themselves were followers of Jesus even though they had questions and doubts about Jesus. Those were the disciples. But in seeing then that this Jesus who was born, lived, died, and rose again, John says this, beginning in verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us to which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with the son and when we experience and know god through the person of jesus one of the conclusions we come to is in verse five this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that god is light and in him is no darkness at all when we come to experience the father through the life of the son one of the conclusions that we come to is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all and it's when we're experiencing the questions and the longings and the doubting of Psalm 42 One of the things that we are wondering and that we are asking is, is God good? Is he loving? Or is this a game to him? Is he messing around or is he absent and he just doesn't care? And one of the conclusions that the disciples come to is that no, when we come to know God and experience him as real through his son, we can conclude that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Which for us, in the wisdom of, a, of Tim Keller says, still doesn't explain why bad things happen. 
still doesn't explain why there are prolonged periods of doubt. But what it does do is tell us what the answers cannot be. It cannot be because God has forgotten us. Because he entered our story. It cannot be because he doesn't care. Because he entered our story. And it cannot be because he's playing some kind of a a meaningless game. Because in experiencing him through the sun we have seen that he is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And so as we enter this season, we all might be at different points uh, in our own journeys of certainty and doubt, questioning and wondering. And hopefully we hear afresh from the writers of the New Testament who, again, are not telling us to accept their wisdom, not telling us to accept their clever ideas, but to hear what they have seen, touched, experienced, upfront and personal, that he has entered our story, that he made it known in ways that not just them as individuals, but hundreds and then thousands of people could verify and then commit themselves to as followers and in the following of him have found that they have not been given reason to turn back. And then to ask yourself, And for me to ask myself, am I willing to follow him? Am I willing to take all that I know to be true of God through Jesus and say, I will follow him. I will commit myself to him as the one who is born witness to the truth. And I can be a follower of him even if I still have lingering questions, lingering doubts, believing that he will in the committed relationship with him, reveal himself as real. That that which you and I believe to be true, we can experience as real in a relationship with him. That's the story of Christmas, addressing the longing that each one of us have for the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We confess that we are surrounded by so much that is noise. Noise in our own heads of all the questions, doubts, frustrations, experiences that are happening. Of the different messages that are going on around us. Of what people are saying. And sometimes we can get so overwhelmed by it that we want to simply forget the subject. And yet, Father, we also confess that no matter what we've experienced, no matter what has come to sway us, we cannot escape a longing that is in our hearts to know what is true, to know what is real. And so we pray, Father, that as we come with those longings, and if, as we come open-minded and open-hearted before you, that you will show yourself real through the person of your son to everyone who opens themselves to you. That you would help us to not make the mistakes 
of thinking that we have to have it all together, but that this very day someone would choose to follow you in spite of the lingering questions and that in following you, you would grant the truth, the certainty, the comfort that your life brings to us. We pray for nothing less, believing that that is your will. And so we ask it in your name. Amen.